Special props to Amy and any scripture reader that has to read from the Old Testament. And uh, good night. I'm glad I'm not going to have to repeat some of those names and try to figure them out. Uh, thank you, Amy. Um, so we're going to start off. You, you see on the screen here a picture of a ropes course. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those before. Um, they're a lot of fun, yet for most people, when you see them and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to go get on this thing, you're kind of filled with a little fear and uh, insecurity. And, uh, and why would you feel fear and insecurity? Because for most of us, to be that high off the ground and the only thing keeping us from breaking most, most bones in our body is a shaky balance that we have on one little wire we're standing on, right? And so you kind of sense, all right, this is a little bit uh, beyond my capability. And some of us don't feel that, but I think the vast majority of us do. But once the person realizes, hey, I'm going to be locked into a harness. That harness is going to be connected to, uh, to a, a guide wire. If I slip, I'm all right. That just, that that realization fills us with some confidence to get on the course and to tackle our insecurities and to go up on the, on the top, top rope. And, uh, and so I've, had, I've been able to do a couple of these. One of them I've done, there's something called a pamper pole. Noel and I did this actually on the bottom right. That's not us. That's just a picture of it. Um, and you essentially, this is a little different than the other ropes course, is that you, you've got to climb up this telephone pole, and it's the full height of a telephone pole. And at the top, there's a little platform, and you got to figure out how to get yourself up onto that platform. And then the goal is for you to jump out, and there's like a trapeze kind of thing that you jump out a bar, and you take on it, and then you swing on it. That's, that's the plan, right? Sounds pretty simple. Uh, until you go stand next to the pole, and you realize how high that is. And then you start climbing the pole, and you feel how shaky it is. But what gives you confidence? I mean, when I looked at this, I'm like, all right, I I don't want to live in fear, but this is kind of scary, right? And what ultimately gets you through it is you know that you've got somebody called a belay. And what that person is, is they're at the bottom and they're, they're literally anchored into the ground. And then they've got a harness on them that connects to a, a, a wire that connects up to you. And, they, and you know that no matter what happens, they have you. They, they literally are giving you peace and security that if I fall, if I, if I just fall off on top of the pole. If I jump and miss the trapeze thing, then they're going to have me. I'm going to be okay. And that sense of, you know, another person has you locked in gives you the sense to, hey, I can, I can tackle this. And it's a little scary, even though you know they're locked in. When you get to the top of that pole and literally that telephone pole is shaking and you're like, how, I mean, my balance is not good anyways. How am I going to be able to handle this and jump off? The fact that you're locked into the blade gives you a sense of security and confidence. Now, wouldn't it be a little odd to do that whole scenario, get up to the top, make it, jump, catch it, get lowered down by your belay, and then say, all right, I got that covered. Belay, I don't need you anymore. You're good to go. You can head on home. I'm going to tackle the pain from pulling my own. Wouldn't that be a little odd, a little bit unwise? Sure, there might be a few folks that might be able to do it, but the belay's needed. It gives you a sense of security and confidence that you're locked in. They're holding you at each and every moment. Well, this picture does have some similarities. Every illustration uh, has its end, which it doesn't teach anymore. But this one does have some similarities to where we find ourselves in the story of Gideon. And the, the idea is this, is that when we realize there is a person that is belaying us in the ropes that hold us secure, we've got confidence. Yet it's dangerous to attempt some things in life without them. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Judges. So the main theme so far in the book of Judges has been this, is that the Israelites keep turning away uh, from God 
to these cultural idols of their day, the Canaanite gods of Baal and Asherah, to give them a sense of security and comfort. God's the one that rescued them from oppression in Egypt, but here they find themselves in the midst of the Canaanites, and they want to just chase after everything the Canaanites are doing. And their decisions get them in the place of uh, take them where they don't want to go, and that God continues to rescue them. And he can rescue them out of their rebellion, and he rescues them in surprising ways. And last week, we looked at the first part of the story of Gideon as this unsurprising leader. God shows up to Gideon, he calls him, and he says, listen, I want you to take not only my people out of idolatry, I want to take you out of the Midianites' hands. And so last week, we talked about how he led them out of idolatry, that ultimately, idolatry was kind of this highway with no off-ramps that Gideon and his people were on, and they were stuck on, and that led them to one destination, poverty and famine. And God showed up to rescue them out of that. And it took them really dealing with their, the enemy and their own camps and their own heart, and that's the dismantling the idols around them. Now the second part of the story comes, and that's God using Gideon to rescue his people from the hand of the Midianites. And this would be a big calling. So we didn't read these, but last week, just referencing them, the Midianites were raiding into Israelite lands, and they were raiding in such number, they were called locusts. And it was literally decimating the economy and the source of food and all those kinds of things for the Israelites. And they lived in fear, hiding, uh, because these radiant Midianites comes in. And so you've got to think, you've got this different tribes all around Israel. You've got the Midianites raising in, or raiding in. For someone to lead them out of this, it would take a sense of, you've got to, one, be willing to step up against these locusts of an army. Two, you've got, you, you've got to be able to unify all your people to do so. And in three, you actually got to win the battle. So this is a big calling. I want us to just to wrestle with that for a moment. And we're going to see Gideon's transformation in this whole process. And we're, you, you'll see it on the screen here. Um, what we're going to see in Gideon, that he's going to go from being fearful and insecure to a place of being willing to lead, and then to leading an army that gets reduced by God from 32,000 Israelites to 300 Israelites against the Midianite army of at least 130-something thousand soldiers. Do you feel how heavy that would be? How challenging that would be? And that's the transformation we're going to see in Gideon's life. And the, the big picture of what I hope God teaches us this morning, and you'll see it up on your screen, it's on your, on your worship guide, is this. Is that in our callings, God is willing to meet us in our insecurities and fears, but we must never lose a sense of our dependence upon him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning uh, we're all coming in different points in life, different struggles, but there are things that bind us all together, Father, and that's that we all come in as we face certain callings in our life that are difficult and challenging. There is no doubt that we have fears and insecurities, but we also are prone to forget you. And so, God, I don't know all the stories, and I don't know all that's happened this week, but I do know those things exist here in our presence. And what I ask you that you would do is that you would make your word come alive to us this morning and do what we have no power to do, which is to meet us in the midst of them, to show us your kindness and your patience, and to show us our need for you. Would you do that, Father, for your glory? Amen. So we'll begin here with just the principle that we see that God meets us in our weakness. And there was a hesitancy in Gideon to engage this calling that was really rooted in his fears and insecurities. Yet God was patient with him and accommodated Gideon's fears and weaknesses. And the tone is set from the beginning. And we've got to remember this, that Gideon wasn't, 
over there, say, the, the one bastion of faith in the people of the Israelites, he was hiding in fear and stuck on this highway of the idolatry. And God showed up to rescue him. God came to meet him. So the very beginning of the story is God meeting Gideon. Not Gideon calling out for God. God meeting Gideon where he was at. That's the very thing we see. But then we're going to, what I want us to do is I want us to go through this story kind of piece by piece and see Gideon's fears and insecurities and to see how God responds. So we're going to be kind of walking through the story piece by piece. We're going to begin here in verse 15. You'll see it on your screen. God shows up, tells Gideon, hey, you're going to lead the Israelites out of this. What was Gideon's response? In verse 15, he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So part of it is like, how's my clan going to unify everybody? We're the weakest to fight this battle. And secondly, who's going to listen to me? Just in my father's house. I mean, I'm I'm imagining him saying, I'm not great with the sword. I'm not great with my words. I'm not great in leadership. How in the world am I going to do this? His response was insecurity and fear. That's what he felt. Well, we see God's patience in verse 16. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So God doesn't come and scold him for his response, but assures Gideon, Listen, I'm going to be with you, and this will happen. It is secure. But that wasn't enough. Gideon needed more assurances from God. We see that in verse 17 here. And he said to him, now this is Gideon, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And so his insecurities are so great that God showing up wasn't enough, and his promises weren't enough that God, Gideon needed signs. How does God respond? We see in verses 17 through 23 that God, Gideon asks for a sign and God gives it. So God doesn't refuse Gideon. And I want you to see this here. Like God in his prerogative can do whatever he wants in this moment. He doesn't have to prove anything to Gideon. He's rescued them before. Gideon would know that. Gideon knew very well of all the rescues in the past through the oppression of Egypt. He shows up to Gideon. He speaks to Gideon. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't owe God, Gideon anything else. But what does God do? He stoops down to where Gideon finds himself in his fear and insecurity. And he's willing to give him the signs that he asked for. You see the tenderness of God there? God then calls Gideon. The first step is going to, you're going to need to lead my people out of idolatry. You're going to have to dismantle the idols around you. We looked at this last week. And what did we see? Gideon's fear in verse 27. So Gideon did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family... And the men of the town, he did it to do it by day, he did it by night. So what we see in Gideon, he does fall forward in obedience, but he's riddled with fear here. But God's patience happens in verses 28 and 32, that God rescues Gideon from the danger through Joash. And so again, God could say, man, I'm going to teach you a lesson, Gideon. You're going to go and you're going to half-hearted obedience, right? You're going to go and you're going to do it in fear. You're not even going to do it during the day. Even though I've told you I'm with you, you We could talk ourselves into seeing God being like that pretty easily. This is not what God does. He rescues him using Joash. So in the storyline now, Gideon's been falling forward in obedience. After that encounter, he's experienced God's rescue. The idols in their camp are dismantled. And what begins to happen is is he calls out uh, around to the surrounding tribes, and they begin to gather for war. And God firmly arise and go, but tenderly. Go with your servant. Isn't that interesting? 
just I thought about it. How much more comfortable do we feel in difficult situations when we have somebody around us? Right? Go with your servant. Go, he, go, just go. And Gideon doesn't know what he's going for, but go. He's going to go listen to what's happening. And so he shows up, and we're not going to look at it here, but he overhears the Midianites talking about a dream they just had. And their interpretation of this dream is we are about to get routed by God and Gideon, and we are terrified. So the very fear that has been dominating Gideon's life has now infected this whole camp of 130-something thousand soldiers, and they're filled with fear. And it's about to break loose. And Gideon in that moment realizes, oh my gosh. God really is going to do this. We're going to pick up in a, in a few moments, and he's going to, he's going to worship, and, and he's amazed, and he's convinced at this moment. So what, what's going on here? I think some of what's happening with Gideon was that he was just self-aware, that there was legit reason for him to be fearful. I mean, I think sometimes we like to hear the story of Gideon, and you're like, oh, Gideon, you're such a you know, wimp. You're so scared. If you look at the facts on the page, he's got, he is just self-aware at the situation. He obviously wasn't this stellar warrior who everybody was gathering around and his tribe was gathering around them. And he's looking at attacking the Midianites who's been raiding them. And he's going to do it now with 300 with no weapons at his, in his hands, but with jar in one hand, which is kind of strange, and then trumpets in the other. Not really what you go to battle with. So there's a little bit of just self-awareness that puts him in a position that there is no way I can accomplish this on my own. i got a small clan. All of the people are living in fear, and you want me to do this? And so I think that, in some ways, Gideon is a very realistic picture of humanity. As we face some difficult callings in life, and we realize that we don't necessarily have the resources to bear to really see success in these areas of our life. I think this is just a, 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 a real honest take of humanity. And I think if we're honest... Deep down, we're pretty surprised at how God responds to Gideon's weakness and fear and insecurities. I think deep down, we, not all of us, but I think many of us can be susceptible to thinking that in, when we sit in these fears and insecurities, that God is just up there just tapping his feet and just shaking his head and his patience is draining thin. And it's, at the end of the day, it's going to be really soon where God just says, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm done with your fears and insecurities. I'm done with your weakness. I'm moving on. You ever feel that? I don't think we like to admit those thoughts, but I think we've had those thoughts come in our mind at times. But that's just not what we see happening here. God responds with, I know, Gideon. I know this is too big for you. I know that you're fearful. I know that you're outmanned. I know this is legit dangerous. But I love you. And I'm going to walk with you. And I love my people. And I'm going to rescue them. But here's the thing. We're going to do it together. That's God's response in this moment, meeting us in the weakness. And the principle that I think we can pull out of here that we see God doing and how he handles Gideon, it'll be on your screen as this, is that God patiently empowers us to press through our insecurities to fulfill his calling. 
that God was, that Gideon was empowered to become what God had declared. So there was a reality that when God showed up, there was a place that Gideon was in presently. And we saw it in verse 15. It's on your screen is that he came to him and he said, he was honest. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my father's house. That's who Gideon was presently. He lived in it. He felt it. That's what roamed him, ruled over him. But then there was the reality what he was becoming. And then we see this in verse 12. And this is what God proclaimed about him. And it wasn't just this wishful thinking. This was who God saw him becoming. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And so we see what God is doing. God is going to empower him. God has a vision for where he's becoming. And this empowerment is seen in the transformation of him going from pleading for assurances to boldly leading an army. And I want us to see this. And, and I want you to think, okay, the passage we're about to read in chapter 7, verse 15 to 18, this is the very God that said, I'm the least and the weakest. All right? What do we see happening? Look at verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. So that's going back to the story where he went down to the Midianite camp and he heard the dream that this was legit, that God was working fear amongst the Midianites and they were going to rout them. And what's his response? He's captured that God is going to do it. And what does that do for him? And he turned, returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. So God has been having to tell Gideon to arise. Now Gideon is able to tell the people that. And he divided the 300 into three companies and put trumpets into their hands, all of them, the empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet, and I and who are with me, then blow the trumpets, and also on every side of all the camp, and shout for the Lord and with Gideon. Do you feel the boldness? Do you see the different place he finds himself? He's out front. He's leading. He's in front of them. He's going where he, there. He's asking them to go, and he's boldly telling them to follow him. It's a radically different place from where we found himself in chapter 6 and where he finds himself in chapter 7. And the point is, and we went through each of those segments to, to prove to us that it wasn't his willpower and special leadership ability that landed him in this place. He did something, but it was God's patience and powering of him that led him to lead in this moment in his calling. And that's what we see happening in here. And so there's something beautiful in this story for us, that God really is patient. When we feel ill-equipped for the difficult callings he's placed before us, that God really is patient with us when we feel that insecurity and fear. And he wants to empower us to meet it. But there's a second part to the story today that also there's a warning not to lose that sense of dependence upon him. It doesn't mean we should live in our insecurities, but we can't lose our dependence upon who he is. So we're going to shift now to this, this forgetting our dependence. And it seems that Gideon's in his success forgot his weakness and forgot where he came from and forgot that he needed God to work in and through him. And there are different places you can see this, but overall what happens is that if you read the narrative in 6 and ch chapter 7, you, get, you see a lot of conversation with God and about God. But once you move to chapter 8, God surprisingly is gone from the narrative. There's no more real talking to God. There's no more God showing up. He's just surprisingly absent. And it becomes symptomatic of something that, that seems to be happening in Gideon. 
And you can see the effects of this in his leadership in a few different ways. We're gonna, I'm going to mention one, and, and we're going to look in detail at, at one more. But one of the ways you see it, if you've read through that passage this week, you have this surprising shift, almost Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of deal, where he becomes vengeful in his responses to people around him. That he's chasing the Midianites, uh, and he's tired, and he's hungry, and he comes across these other Israelites, and he's like, hey, will you give me some food and, uh, to help our army? And they're, of course, scared because they're not sure Gideon's going to beat the Midianites. They had been a part of this whole conversation that Gideon had with God. And so they're like, eh, I don't really know if I want to do that. We don't know if you've really conquered the Midianites. And he, he promises that he's going to re- come back to them with vengeance. Happens to two different Israelite towns. And sure enough, he comes back through once he routes the many nights and he does that very thing. He does this also that the, the, what happens in chapter 8 as well is that it becomes no longer of, of liberating themselves from the many nights, but bringing vengeance upon their kings. And we saw that again. It's just one clear way we see something's off. But there's another clear way, and it's in chapter 8, verses 22 to 28. And it's Gideon turned to solidify his own success with the making of this kind of idea of an ephod. So we're going to pick up here in verse 22. It'll be on the screen. And he said, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So if you pause right there, you can think, Ah, Gideon still got it together. Listen, we've got this propensity to know the right things and to live radically different than those right things. And we see it very clearly here because he's saying, I don't want to rule over you. We're going to pick up in the conversation, but he's going to get a lot of gold, which is what Kings got in the war. He's going to gather a lot of wives, which unfortunately is what was happening common for Kings. And he's going to do something to try to secure his success in his town and set his own town up as the place where we're ruling over the people. So whatever he's telling, we're going to see that that's really not how he's going to function. And Gideon said to them, Let me make one request of you, though. Every one of you will give me earrings from his spoil. And for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Now we might, wait, how much is that? That's between 35 and 70 pounds of gold, depending how you count it. That's a lot of wealth, right? Yeah, that's a lot. That's king's spoil. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in a city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rested for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And so we see Gideon begin to act like this king, but he does something very interesting. He makes an ephod. And this was an ornate ceremonial garment. That's kind of an artist's rendition of what it could look like on the screen there. And it was to be worn by the high priest. And it was used by Israel to gain some guidance from God, right? So it sounds a little innocent. He just wants to be sure they're getting guidance from God. But According to the Mosaic law, there was only one person that should have it. There was only one in Israel, and it was to be with the high priest. Now, that's not Gideon, right? And so it seems that Gideon's getting a little taste of success here, and he wanted to ensure it would happen because, and the ephod would in a sense guarantee it. I'm going to set this up in my hometown. I'm going to have all this gold. I'm going to have all these wives. Hey, we're ready to roll, right? 
I've got this thing locked down. That's the picture we're getting of getting here. So he's saying one thing with this phrase, I'm not going to rule over you, only the Lord will. But he sets up a situation where he's securing his future success by his own efforts. And then and we can see that this idea of him making this ephod is not innocent and then what it does to God's people. It leads them astray, just like the Canaanite gods did. And so if you notice here this stark language, where it says, all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to get in his family. Now, that's stark language. Why that language? And I think this kind of sets us back a little bit, because what he's doing seems to be kind of innocent. And I think sometimes that, and maybe I'm just self-confessing here, it can be very easy to think of sin as this impersonal breaking of a rule. Like, if you leave and go out on uh, Shaker Town and you go 45 miles an hour, and I think it's a 35 maybe, I don't know exact speed limits, but you probably don't feel uh, a special guilt towards the mayor, uh, a disappointment towards the mayor of, the, of Danville that you've broken the speed limit. You get what I'm saying? It just feels just kind of like an impersonal rule. You don't feel guilt for uh, how you've shamed or hurt this mayor of Danville. Well, in some ways, I think that we can think about our sin this way, but what God wants us to see here this, and this language captures it to get our attention that God wants this exclusive relationship of intimacy with his people, like a marriage. And so when we turn, and when if the Israelites here turn to something else to give them a sense of comfort and security for the future, that was not an impersonal breaking of the rule. What God wants us to see here is it's on, it's on comparison with the pain a spouse should feel when their, spouse, their partner commits adultery in a marriage. That's what he wants us to see. That's what he wants us to feel in that moment. Gideon takes this good thing and he turns it into a God thing and is leading his people astray to trust in something else besides God. And it's greatly offensive to God. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Judges, helps bring it all together and interpret it for us. And this is what he says. It'll be on the screen. Gideon's need for respect and honor and his violent, bitter rage when he fails to be given what he thinks he deserves shows that his success in battle has been the worst thing for him. He has become addicted to and dependent upon his success. There is a terrible spiritual danger involved in the receiving of any blessing. Success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. God-given victory can easily be used to confirm the belief that, in fact, we have earned blessing for ourselves and should receive the praise and glory for that success. Back in Judges chapter 7, verse 15, when Gideon knew his own weakness and understood that victory could only be by grace, he worshiped and honored God. That's when he was looking on the Midianite camp and, and heard their dream. But that is the last time we see him doing that. Now he worships success and honor it will bring him. He has entirely forgotten God, forgotten who it is that called him, equipped him, reassured him, and won the battle for him. We too find it all too easy to forget that everything, our salvation, and all our good works are gifts of grace, not of our own success. I don't know about you, but I've experienced that kind of amnesia. Fearful, insecure, God grants some success. I easily forget it and think I got there on my own and begin to love the praise that that success brings. And it's the very thing we see here. And I think that one of the principles, that, there's a lot of principles here, but one of them that we can pull out of this, and it's on the screen here, is that we can't rely on past experiences for future faithfulness. So we, we can conquer our insecurities 
but we never conquer our need for dependence upon God. We always sit in that, and that's a good thing that God has set up. And you're probably wondering why this meal is in front of you right now. Well, we're about to hit into Thanksgiving season, by far my favorite feast of the year. And the reality is, no matter how much you gorge yourself on that Thursday, by Sunday, you, you need to eat again. Now, you may not need to eat as much as you ate on Sunday, but you need something to sustain you in that moment. Whatever that past meal provided for you, although you think it provided you enough calories for the next month, it really didn't. You need more calories on Monday. Much less your Thanksgiving meal 10 years ago doesn't really do enough to, much to provide you present need for today. What am I getting at here? How does this have to do with this principle? Is this. We have a propensity to find our comfort and our security and our approval and power in something other than God. We all have it. We never leave that till the day we die and go to Jesus. And we need continual strength from God to meet that propensity and that challenge. So in the past, we may have victory over struggle. In the past, we may see God show up and empower us in some big ways. And the past is important to draw on for the future, but we can't live off our past experiences of who God is to give us the strength in the present struggles of temptation. You see what I'm getting at here? That meal won't serve us today in the very same way. We need present taste of the bread of life, of who Jesus is, to enable us to move forward in our callings today. That's what we're seeing here. And so what we see in Gideon's story is one hand, the tenderly meeting of the Father of God in our insecurities to empower us. And yet at the same time, we see in the very same person, this is why it's such a picture of humanity, that we can forget and lose a sense of our dependence upon him. So where do we go from here? One is there is an encouragement for those who feel ill-equipped in their calling. That we often, like Gideon, do feel ill-equipped. We can look out on the world and we say, how in the world am I going to be an ambassador to Christ in this hostile culture? As parents, we can look out on the world and we think, how in the world do I raise my kids and protect them from some of the difficulties in life and not shelter them so much that they can't move out in confidence? Or how in the world do I patiently discipline and be tender with them and still point them to Jesus? When you get kids, you feel that. You feel ill-equipped for that. Or maybe when we think about our job, how in the world do I, do I do my vocation with excellence under the pressures I feel? And some of the reasons when you feel ill-equipped to those are very similar to Gideon, fear, insecurities, and understanding of our limitations. But what we see in Gideon's story is that God is in the business of taking ill-equipped people with small armies to conquer vast forces. And so the encouragement to you, as you sense fear and insecurity, as you face a difficult thing in your calling, is you're not left alone to your own willpower. We're not telling you to walk out of here and just try harder. You're left with a story where you and I get to look at our fears and insecurities. We don't have to run from them. We can stare at them and we can bring them into the presence of God. And what we're going to find there is not a God who scolds us, but a God who meets us there with patience and tenderness. And we'll find a God that will empower us to fulfill the very things he's called us to do. That's what Gideon teaches us. Gideon did not know the how of how everything was going to walk forward. And so he had to walk forward. But he walked forward in the empowerment of a patient and kind God at his back. That's what we see here. But there is also a warning to fight to finish well. The propensity for us to turn to idols 
to give us a sense of security and meaning and satisfaction and comfort, it doesn't end when we're 45 or 75, and it doesn't lessen. That might shift and look different, but the very propensity is there. And so there are many followers of Jesus in here who have served him well. You've, some of you have helped plant this church. Some of you have led large groups of people and shepherded them with the word. Some of you have served and met needs behind the scenes year after year after year and have been faithful in your vocations and faithful in all those things. And there's a propensity just like Gideon for us to rest in those past experiences, that past knowledge to help us fight the present temptation of idolatry in the moment. And so do you walk in, do you feel yourself in cruise control? Do you feel yourself just, and you can't remember really the most fresh taste of Jesus that you've had and how he's met you in some of these things. And what you draw on is mainly experiences from the past. The warning is here is not to coast, but to fight to remember our dependence and cling to Jesus. So we close with this. That the hope for you and I is not to find some inner strength to conquer this challenge in front of us. The hope we have, whether you're ill-equipped or whether you're prone to forget, is to look to the one who Gideon did. And here's the beauty of us looking at this story, not as Israelites, but as this side of the cross, is this, that we've got a far greater encouragement and hope that Gideon did because we sit in a unique place. God showed up, and he gave Gideon assurance after assurance. And Gideon needed it. But God's declaration over us, that we're his sons and daughters, and he's going to walk with us in the callings that he's given us, is more firm and secure than any assurance they could ever give Gideon because they're anchored in this reality that Jesus showed up and he entered the broken world and he took on what we deserved on the cross and he rose from the dead to conquer it. And that is a far greater assurance and it makes his, his declaration over us most sure over any fleece that could ever come to our table that he is with us and that he will patiently meet us where we find ourselves. He looks at us as he sees us as we are, his children and who we're becoming. And his patience and goodness with us is as infinite as what the work on the cross provided. And not only that, but Jesus is our better Gideon. And one of the things that you see over and over and over again is that God rescues his, his people through, through surprising means. And Gideon was a surprising mean. And one of the things he wants to see is that if I could rescue my people through this weak an insecure leader, how much more Jesus who would come later. And Jesus didn't come reluctantly. And he didn't come in weakness in a sense that would get in came. He came with confidence to pursue you and I to rescue us from sin's grip. So Grace Church, as we feel our weaknesses and insecurities, when we look at our callings, we can rest assured that Jesus eagerly came. He eagerly came to uphold each one of us. And as we feel this propensity to forget who God is, we can rest assured that Jesus is far greater than anything any cultural idol could offer us. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to uh, 
kind of distance ourselves from what Gideon faced on the ground as he looked at this army. And he's looked into his own camp and he looked at all his choices and his own weaknesses and said, how in the world am I going to lead this people against the Midianites? And what we see is not something fanciful. It's not a one-time event that you've done. But we see a principle of how you work. That we, as your people, as we gather, we don't gather in our strength. We gather in our weakness. We gather in our insecurities and our fear. And maybe that weakness is what we don't have, or maybe that weakness is even the fact that we forget you often. But the God who has showed up to meet us here this morning is far greater than anything we could imagine. He's a God, and you are the God who has shown up to meet us where we are. And would you do that? Would you convince us that you're with us? Would you help us move, move forward in confidence? And those of us who can't remember the last time we maybe met with you, don't, we are living off our past success in one sense, our past experiences. Would you give us a fresh taste of who you are? It's in your name we pray. Amen.